evening, everyone. You're all very welcome to the LSE Festival and to this event, which has been co-organised by the Forum for Philosophy and the European Institute. Um, uh, so I have to thank a few people, first of all, Huge thanks to the LSE and all the people involved in the festival for uh, making this happen with their usual aplomb and professionalism. They're always a delight to work with, so we're very grateful for their work. Um, also to the European Institute, uh, who have donated one of their own members of staff, Simon Glendinning, to us for the night, and who are also sponsoring the wine event that's happening, the wine reception that's happening after this event, um, to which you're all very welcome to come to. Um, it's on the eighth floor, and if you're not sure where that is, the stewards will direct you um, after the event. Um, this is in part an event to uh, honour uh, our old uh, director, Simon Vendin. Um, he stepped down so that he could take up duties as head of department in the European Institute. Um, and, uh, well, we're, we're sorry to see him go. Um, and we wanted to say thank you for all his hard work and to show off his brains. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing tonight. So, um, yeah, thanks a million for coming, and please join me in welcoming our panel for tonight's session. Thanks. Thank you, Beth, and thank you all for coming. Um, I'm Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum, and I'm going to be chairing this evening's event in which we are talking about the haunting of neoliberalism. So let me introduce our speakers. Robert Eagleston is Professor of Contemporary Literature. Of course, yeah. Robert Eagleston is Professor of Contemporary Literature and Thought at Royal Holloway University of London. Maya Zephus is Professor of International Politics at the University of Manchester. And Simon Glendinning is Professor of European Philosophy here at the LSE. So the inspiration for this event was... Thanks, Bob. Um, the 25th anniversary of the publication of Derrida's text, Spectres of Marx. That's the kind of springboard for our conversation. So, Simon, perhaps you can tell us why should we carry on reading this text? What can it tell us about our current day? Well, I was going to say, first of all, that actually uh, the title of this festival, A New World Disorder, is actually words Derrida uses in the course of his discussion which was written in the early 90s, very shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what he was looking at was a world which, not, not without some justice, was uh, jubilant about the events of the late 80s and early 90s. Um, but what was forming itself at that time uh, was a situation that he thought carried concerns with it. We'll, we'll talk a little later about some of this, about how the Western powers were not just jubilant, not just gloating about the collapse of the Soviet Union, which there was considerable justice in that, uh, but also um, seeing the events at the close of the 80s and, and 90s, early 90s, as bringing about a kind of end of history, what was regarded by, for example, in the work of Francis Fukuyama as a, an end of history. Now, so this makes the book a, a, what one might call a, a, an occasional piece. It's absolutely tied to an occasion, uh, the, and it's, in a way, Derrida making a response to the end of the Cold War, massively of its moment. Um, but it is, as it were, something he makes into a philosophical occasion, um, an occasion for philosophy, 
And he looks at uh, issues around the idea of the end of history, not just in terms of the events that were taking place at that time, but uh, for, um, a, a, as it were, taking on board a history of philosophical thinking about um, human political development that was, as it were, seemed to be inscribed in the event. I mean, to what extent is that a European history of philosophy, Maya? Um, I was actually going to start by saying something different, if I may. Um, it occurred to me when I was sitting on the train and thinking about this question of why one might want to read this book, um, that one might want to read it precisely because it is of its time. As I'm looking at you, um, there are a lot of people from different generations here today. And the book reminds me of how I felt uh, when I was the age um, that today's students mostly are. And it was a time where there was great enthusiasm that there might be a more peaceful world. And certainly for someone like me who had grown up in West Germany at the fault line of the superpower confrontation, that was no trivial hope. So I think we can be uh, critical in retrospect about uh, the way in which the West uh, maybe overplayed its hand and was superior and arrogant. But um, I've been trying to explain to my students the, the, the hope that we felt at the time that is really quite a curious idea when we're looking back from today. But the other thing, and that's right, Danielle, that struck me when I reread the book is how much it takes um, a ideological dispute between um, the West and the East. So essentially uh, something that concerned Europe and the North Atlantic area is something that determines the future of the globe. And once we've had this ideological dispute, um, there was an expectation that peace would break out. So. It struck me from the perspective of 2019 how much the global south is not really um, something that plays a role in this book except at the margin, which is interesting because Derrida is quite sensitive typically um, to the implications of colonialism um, and its aftermath. So I found that curious when I reread it. Well, I wonder whether you want to answer the same question. Why should we read it? Well, I, I, I was thinking... Uh, in contrast to these two sort of geopolitical uh, understandings of its historical context, I remember when it came out, uh, everyone in literary studies and in European philosophy had been uh, demanding that sort of Derrida spoke about, about Marx and his Marxist inheritance and where he stood on, on these uh, social political issues. And when the book came out, it was all very exciting. This was his word on, on his engagement with that. Um, to sort of answer these critics, and of course, because it's a Derrida book, it's, it's a complicated, diffuse, interesting, demanding kind of answer or explanation. But he talks uh, in it about Marx's three voices, so I guess we'll talk a bit about that. But it seemed, I guess, because of the, the changes you were talking in the early 90s, that these sort of demands, that the, the appeal and the urgency, were, were, were very alive. And then I suppose one thing that struck me in rereading it to now was to, again, in the humanities, I suppose, again, a sudden sense of um, of urgency to address all sorts of, of issues that have re-emerged, re-emerged in different sorts of ways. And so one reason, I think, to go back to it is to, to explore, 
the sort of answers are given in relation to those, those urgent calls, particularly for the, for the humanities, for the philosophy and so on. And do we now have a different sense of the role of Marxism in the 20th century than, than Derrida was expressing at this point? What has what shifted? Well, I mean, I think the, the uh, inheritance, insofar as there is an inheritance yeah. of Marx in, in the text, uh, is a very important um, gesture for us. I mean, one, obviously part of the story is about the thought was that the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, end, the collapse of the Soviet Union, is simply not just the end of a, a, a particularly monstrous regime, but the end of Marx, as it were, the death of Marx, the death of Marxism. And Derrida takes this quite seriously because he's not a Marxist, right? And he says repeatedly, I'm not a Marxist, although he worries that he's quoting Marx when he says that. But um, I'm, I'm not a Marxist, but, and yet there is something uh, he finds deeply problematic about the gesture which says it's all over for Marx and Marxism. And he, uh, as it were, produces a very selective inheritance of what he wants to save and what he wasn't, doesn't want to save. In fact, one of the most remarkable lines is him admitting to having a sort of half-smile when he says, what I don't want to inherit is almost everything. <laughs> Right. So, uh, but nevertheless, uh, there is something, and we, uh, maybe we'll come back to precisely what it is that he wants to save. But it, I think it's important to see that for him, or for him, for us, uh, the purpose of returning and retrieving something from Marx at this particular time is done in the name of democracy, and not really in the name of communism at all. Once he talks about a sort of communism to come, but he immediately rewrites that as a a gesture towards a democracy to come. And it's democracy, that, uh, so it's not simply the future of Marx, but with Marx in view, issues for him about the future of democracy, and especially thinking about the relationship between democracy, parliamentary democracy, elected representativity in nation states, international law in relation to the future for us. And, and so I think uh, he, he saw a, a serious danger, again, which we can come back to, about thinking one could embark on those questions about the future of democracy in some kind of complete abandonment or, or, or some sense that uh, there's nothing, that, that the whole tradition that Marx belongs to is over. He talks quite a lot about the spirit of Marxism. What's going on there? Um, somebody else. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you. <laughs> You go then. <laughs> I'm not Actually, sure. I'd like, I'd like to, to, to preface this with something else that I think we, I'd like, like to talk about. Because when, he, when he's talking about the spirit of Marxism, what he passes on very quickly to is spirits, plural, right? And that yeah. belongs to that point about a selective inheritance, that there's more than one thing that is Marx and Marxism. And uh, we have, unless we, as it were, want to be overwhelmed by... Uh, an inheritance or a disinheritance that we uh, um, don't, as it were, participate in consciously, um, then we have to recognise these different spirits, plural, of Marx. And uh, let's, let's wait a bit before we see what it is that he wants to inherit. <laughs> um, but why? I, I think we're a bit curious. So what, what do, I mean... 
The whole book is about what he wants to inherit. Well, Bob is going to say something about this. <laughs> He's going to say something You're about... Passing this question like a hot potato. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I've got it all here, but I think... <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh, I suppose I want to... One thing that's been very taken up for the book is, is the mode of inheritance. So the, the idea of the, the spirits of beginning uh, with Hamlet encountering the ghost of his father in the, uh, the battlements of Elsinore is a, is a, has been an astonishingly productive kind of metaphor for engaging with the spirit of something. So he says later on in the book that it's a way of making the, making, giving visibility to the invisible. And this idea of, of, he calls it hauntology, this idea of engaging with ghosts, engaging with the spirit of the past, has been uh, historically powerful in the book, and Simon will talk more about that, but it's also been an historically powerful metaphor. I mean, ghosts, he says, are very complicated things because they're ontologically problematic. They're kind of there, and they're not there at the same time. So the, Hamlet's, the ghost of Hamlet's father says, he doesn't say, I am your father. He says, I am your father's spirit. So he kind of is old Hamlet, and he's not old Hamlet at the same time. And that sense of, of, um, that sense of inheritance, that you have to speak to these ghosts, speak to the, the spirits, whatever they are, is, is, a, is an astonishingly powerful idea. It's different from ideas like memory. It's different from ideas like tradition. It's different from all those kind of ideas, precisely because it has that need to speak to it. It has the, and, and the haunting kind of presence. And as he plays through all the way through the book, with the idea of spirit, with those ideas that uh, are coming out of Hegel, but also coming out of uh, forms of religion, this incredibly powerful, very hard to pin down idea of spirit. Right. And I suppose something that haunts you, haunts you without you necessarily wanting this. Um, so the idea that we can somehow move on and forget Marx strikes me as preposterous, frankly. I mean, I don't, I'm not particularly invested in which version of Marxism we should be engaging with. I'm sure Simon has more to say on that. But the idea that you can just say, oh, that was Marx, we're done, uh, now we just start a new era of thinking without Marx, has, you know, that just doesn't work from the beginning. So even those people who might have wanted to do that will remain haunted by Marx's insights. And there's an important thought about inheritance here and, and, and the the haunting, uh, which is that um, Derrida thinks, and he's following actually in a line of spirits when he says this, that we, we, we are not beings who, as it were, are and then have an inheritance. We are our inheritance. We're absolutely run through by ghosts. We are inhabited by ghosts, and in a certain way, whenever we speak, uh, we're already speaking out of a a space which is um, spectral. And so even, even, even when we talk about inheritance, you know, right down to the bottom of this, we, we inherit concepts of inheritance too. And, and so there's, there's, as it were, no end to this. And if you think, as you're saying, that as it were, we can simply do without something, that as it were, it runs through our whole political existence, as Marx does in one way or another, if, if you leave it, if you don't speak to the ghost, it's going to speak through you anyway in one way or another. Uh, and it's also the case, and he has lots of fun with this in the book, that ghosts, I mean, they walk through walls, they seep into all kinds of things, they appear in strange sorts of ways, so they can't be kind of pinned down and the inheritance can't be sort of logged and finished and put mm. in one place. It's constantly moving throughout 
the castle that is us. Yeah. There is uh, a big important spectre, though, that perhaps we could mention, uh, which belongs especially to the inheritance of Marx, which is the spectre of communism. Um, Marx himself, obviously, uh, brings the spirit, brings the spectre on stage himself in the, uh, at the beginning of the Communist Manifesto. In a, one of its most famous passages, it's, it's, not a, it's not part of the manifesto, it's in a little paragraph that stands apart from it, but it, it, a, it famously says that a, a, a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. And uh, that spectre is something that Derrida wants to take very seriously, if I may say something about that, because um, he, ha he introduces what he calls a hypothesis, it's, it's in a way the central hypothesis for his understanding of what happened in the 20th century, both within the uh, Soviet Union and the communist bloc, and within uh, Germany and Italy with the rise of uh, Nazism and fascism. He talks about three totalitarianisms which are all connected to the spectre of communism. Perhaps today, uh, I don't know how it is at school today, but perhaps today people, when they look at the Second World War, they look at it primarily as a battle against um, an, a Nazi enemy characterized first of all by its, uh, its anti-Semitism. But the principal self-understanding of Nazis is, is, first of all, and I mean, in, within their thinking, this is why they become anti-Semitic, first of all, they're anti-Marxist. And the struggle between Marxism and anti-Marxism that marks the 20th century is something that Derrida wants to produce, what he calls a hypothesis about, uh, in, in relation to this spectre. Because there's an important part where of his thinking which supposes that both the Marxists and the anti-Marxists are both trying to get rid of the spectre, get rid of the spectre of communism. Neither of them, as it were, will tolerate the spectrality of communism. On the anti-Marxist side, that's pretty clear. They want to do everything they can to make it gone, right? And that's the ambition. And also what Derrida will see in the at the end of the 20th century is, is some jubilation. It's gone, it's gone. The spectre is gone. But, you know, Derrida, we've already mentioned, thinks that ghosts don't come and go like that. Uh, but the anti-Marxists want to do everything they can to make it gone. And the, but the Marxists too, uh, as it were, have an aversive fear of the ghost, the ghostly apparition of the spectre, because they want to do everything they can to make it real. This thing that Bob said, that what, they, what, what a lot of people find troubling about a ghost is that it's neither like properly there, present, materially uh, actual, but nor is it completely absent, not, not just... And uh, the ghost has this ontological status, as you say, the hauntology. And so he, Derrida reads the struggles between uh, Marxism in its attempt to get rid of the spectre by making it actual, and the anti-Marxists who want to get rid of the spectre by making it gone. He calls this reciprocal reactions to the fear of the ghost that communism inspired. 
And it drives both into a ruthless war where each one is attempting to seek the final elimination of the spectre. Each did so by ceaselessly seeking out whatever seemed to them to deviate from that effort. And where either side attained political power, bringing about, as it were, the unlimited extension of their politics into the whole of life. And this then Derrida sees as the, the roots of totalitarianism in Europe, understood through this absolute desire to get rid of the spectre, either by making it actual, in which case you've got to get rid of everybody who is like troublingly anti-Marxist. And uh, equally on the other side, uh, getting rid of everybody who is troublingly Marxist. And these totalitarian states built up around the fear of the ghost. Now that's a, an extraordinary hypothesis, which I, he, Derrida says at a certain point, I would really like you to take this seriously. <laughs> uh, but, um, but it, obviously it's, uh, it's, it's very novel. Um, but it is bound up with this thought that um, this status of the ghost, which Derrida thinks, as it were, runs through our whole life. Our whole lives are already ghost-ridden spaces, but we don't, we're troubled by it. And he's trying to cultivate a kind of politics which is, you could say, more ghost-friendly. It's like the whole point of deconstruction is the acknowledgement and acceptance of the ghostliness, the spectrality of life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, there's a moment in the, in the book where Derrida lists these uh, ten plagues of the new world order. Um, and it's interesting looking back at those and thinking about um, whether they're still relevant, what sense they make. Um, Maya, perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I found that actually totally amazing. I ended up actually writing them down as a list because, uh, you know, Derrida, when he kind of talks about the list of ten, he actually goes off onto five tangents, so by the time you're at number three, you've forgotten what the first two were. Um, so I had to actually write it down. And it's utterly amazing um, that actually most of these things are incredibly relevant today, and there is very little um, that is probably missing from this list. Now, um, there are certain things that, that strike me particularly because I'm interested in relation to my work. So number two, for example, is the exclusion of the homeless, um, the deportation of immigrants and stateless people, um, and <coughs> those groups of people, uh, their exclusion from participation in democracy. That is certainly something that we would recognize today. Um, there are all kinds of things about unemployment, uh, economic struggle between European Union countries uh, and the U.S., uh, and then he talks about Japan. Nowadays, we might perhaps say China. But there's quite a lot here um, that, that is still very, very relevant. What I found um, most striking, actually, is his analysis, which isn't actually on this particular list, but where he talks about the um, struggles that liberal democracy have, the, 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 the crisis of liberal democracy. And he talks about what he calls the techno-telemedia apparatuses. Now, we probably wouldn't use a different word today, but it's like this could have been written yesterday. So I, I find it, in a way, incredibly prescient. And, and for that alone, I think it would, it's worth rereading uh, the book. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I also made a list uh, of the <laughs> things. Uh, but also, but they're kind of modern translations. So he talks about the, the new poverty, of course, from other politics, and we call that precarity today. The refugee crisis you, you mentioned, the, the, the international neoliberalism, and also I'd forgotten it's where he coins a fantastic word, uh, ontopology, which is the, his word for combining topos, meaning place, and being, ontos, uh, that sense that your being and a place are kind of woven together in a, you know, in the, in the Nazi squat blood and soil, but also that, that, that sense of um, being and geography being completely fused together. Uh, we see that now when people talk about cosmopolitans versus locals or citizens of nowhere. All these are revolving around this idea of ontopology. He just sort of throws this off as a, a thing. <laughs> the arms industry, nuclear proliferation, inter-ethnic wars he talks about. He talks about phantom states, the, the mafia and so on. Of course, that's uh, the debate over Bitcoin, for example, uh, make that even, even worse, as well as the present state of international law. So all these things, they are extremely prescient. He talks, in fact, I had to write this down, he talks about the primitive conceptual phantasm of the state, uh, which sort of imagines that there's sovereignty and borders that can be maintained, which, you know, I wouldn't like to comment, but it's certainly something <laughs> I recognize. Um, and he ends up actually talking uh, about international law and the problem uh, of international law um, with its European roots that, that it, uh, although it universalizes itself, it is uh, in debt to its European origin and the sorts of issues that that throws up. Um, so although he doesn't talk about the history of colonialism overtly in the book, it's there that I think um, he introduces that notion um, that we're really talking here about European history and that, you know, the, the way in which European man envisages himself. So, again, very interesting questions there. Yes, please. Well, so the, only, the only one where, as it were, it seemed, it seemed to be slightly better now than it was then was about um, uh, aid and debt, for, uh, third world debt. That seemed to be something that had been, had been slightly better now than it was then, maybe. Partially because all the advanced countries are even more in debt, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to remember that, uh, I mean, apart from their being intrinsically interesting, the, these points are brought to bear in, um, a, a, in at a moment when um, people like Fukuyama, who he's discussing, are celebrating the uh, um, end of history having arrived with um, liberal democracy and capitalism being identified as the final stage of human politics. And Derrida wants not only to bring certain philosophical questions to bear about this, he's saying, are you even aware of all the terrible things that are going on in the world today? And, and this is a sort of, it's just him shaking Fukuyama a little bit about... Uh, an end of history being proclaimed in the name, first of all, of a very historically specific form of democracy, and we, and we again should come back to that, but in a very time of what he calls a new world disorder. Uh, this is a quote, he says, this triumphant conjuration of the death of Marxism, so when this jubilant victorious side, which it was a victorious side, but it, you know, to the, the extent to which it understood itself 
in terms of an end of history shouldn't be um, uh, over-minimized. But the triumphant conjuration of the death of Marxism is striving in truth to disavow and therefore to hide from the fact that never, never in history has the horizon of the thing whose survival is being celebrated, namely all the old models of the capitalist and liberal world, never has it been as dark, threatening and threatened. You know, so he, he is not an enemy of uh, liberal democracy and certainly not of democracy, but he's not, a, an, he's not uncritical either. And he, he's, he, the, the, I think he's just sort of affronted by the thought that somebody could celebrate liberal democracy and capitalism as we have it today as some kind of ideal end, of ideal adequacy of, um, of, of democratic self-government. So I think um, you know, the, the context of the, the ten plagues and so on is just, it, it's, it's this, a period in the book of a kind of relentless um, wake-up call to people like Fukuyama who uh, he finds too uncritical. There's a, there, we can come, I don't know where, where we're up to. <laughs> um, there is, um, I, I mean, I've already mentioned it, perhaps we can come back to it, but it is in the name of democracy that Derrida will develop this. And so there's a certain sympathy he has with uh, Fukuyama. Um, and uh, moreover, uh, there is nothing in Derrida which is saying, wouldn't it be nice if we could go back to that nice uh, Soviet bureaucracy um, which had killed millions of people and so on, or, 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 or taking China as a model. He continues to think that what he's contributing to is a developing self-critique, and we, maybe we should move on to this, but a self-critique of, dem of democracy itself. So, I mean, there's a lot going on in this phrase, end of history, isn't there? Mm. Um, if he's clearly rejecting the kind of Fukuyama sense of this phrase, what else is he doing? What other work is this idea of the end of history doing in the, in the book? Do you want to talk first about the messianism that might be thought of involved in an end of history? Because it, I think the, the religious origins of these ideas are... Yeah, so, so one of the things that really struck me, uh, going back to it, was how profoundly it was saturated with the discourse of religion. Uh, so even the ten plagues, is a, you know, mm -hmm. there could have been eleven or there could have been fifteen, but they, he chose ten. Um, <laughs> And all the way through, there's the, the thinking of religion is, is bound in with it. So towards the end, I was thinking it could have been, you know, not, uh, not spectres of Marx, but spectres of Abraham or spectres of yeah. Jesus. Or, um, and it, it's as if that's the sort of unspoken subtext that keeps coming through. And he keeps going back to it in a very Derridean kind of way. And right towards the end, on page 209, he says, um, what's fascinating about religion says, the religious is, is not just... Uh, he's talking about sort of, sort of Marxism and the spirit as a kind of religious phenomena. And he says religion, thus religious is not just one ideological phenomenon or phantomic production amongst others. On the one hand, it gives the production of the ghost or the ideological phantasm its originary form or paradigm of reference, its first analogy. So it's religion that first creates the, the idea of the spectre. And, the, uh, and then he says on the other the religious also informs, along with the messianic and the eschatological, that spirit of emancipatory Marxism whose injunctions we are reaffirming here. 
So there's some uh, religious spirit which is underlying things, but also in Derrida giving a model for things. And all the time he's kind of prevaricating between saying, you know, is the messianic and the eschatological, is it, is it as it were, um, part of our being that we're constantly hoping towards the future and thinking about the ends? Or is it uh, coming specifically out of that uh, Christian Abrahamic heritage? And he, he's undecided between those two. I mean, how could one decide? Um, but, but that kind of uh, idea seems to motivate the whole book. So at the end, I was thinking, I want another chapter, which is about <laughs> what is, what's the relationship between the Abrahamic and or Judeo-Christian tradition and the Marxist tradition that he doesn't kind of offer? Oh, I think he does. No. Oh, OK, go on. <laughs> well, go on. Uh, well, so you have... Uh... First of all, with respect to Fukuyama... two minutes for oh, this. With, oh. <laughs> <laughs> with respect to Fukuyama, he, he's very in, insistent in, in reminding us that the Hegel that Fukuyama wants to inherit against Marx is a very Christian Hegel. And that what um, Fukuyama, without really acknowledging it, or perhaps even recognising it when he talks about the good news that has come about the end of history... This good news, this evangelical side of uh, Fukuyama is strictly Christian. And what he's hoping for, in fact, in his Fukuyama's eschatology, his end of things, is um, a Christianizing of the world. And this uh, obviously confronts other places in the world uh, in so doing. And Derrida at that point will talk about an, a third world war already raging in a kind of virtual way over the appropriation of Jerusalem, where all three of the Abrahamic uh, religions, as it were, are vying for uh, control in, in one way or another of that, of that space. But the, um, if you go back, the, your, your question, I'll try to deal, deal with that very quickly, is that Marx is not outside the space, Marx and Marxism are not outside the space of that Christian heritage either or the Judeo-Christian heritage of thinking about an end of things. Now, in Marx, it is absolutely transparent in an idea that there is an end of history in the realisation of communism. And Marx, too, will think about this historical development towards the end in a teleological way. And that's what will hold in common both the religious philosophical histories of, uh, in, in the post-Christian era of Kant and Hegel, and Marx too, even though in his work it, it becomes, instead of uh, philosophical and religious there in Marx, it's philosophical and supposedly scientific. But nevertheless, there is this chain, a, ch a chain of ghosts, uh, Paul Valery says, uh, that uh, Derrida cites at the beginning of the book. Um, and he, in fact, it's a Hamlet moment because uh, he's holding, Valery imagines a, a European Hamlet holding up the skull of Kant, and he, and he says, and this one was Kant, and Kant begat Hegel, and Hegel begat Marx, and Marx begat dot, dot, dot. And we are inscribed in that ellipsis at the end. But all three of them, uh, in one way or another, uh, maintaining a historical teleology of a movement of world history towards an end. Fukuyama endorses that, and the and I suppose the most challenging moment in, of everything in Derrida's discussion here is that he wants to call into question that whole, what he calls, archaeo-teleological tradition, origin, 
to an end, a conception of man as inscribed between those two ends. But where do we go from there, then? <laughs> Exciting places. <laughs> well, again, it's democracy, but... No. Do you want to talk about democracy now? <laughs> I mean, the thing he thinks about democracy is that it, uh, it doesn't have an end. And, in fact, it belongs to democracy for him that it wants itself to be open to uh, self-development, self-critique, self-re-evaluation, self-transformation, which means that pr with the concept of democracy, he thinks uniquely among all political regimes, uh, there's something in it that remains to come. Not, not as it were, uh, in the sense of an anticipated end of ideally adequate democracy, but precisely the opposite of that. That is to say, remains to come, remains to be thought. We, the, the idea of having an ideal democracy, uh, the ideal would be one which leaves itself open to the future. And so that would be the non-teleological way of thinking about a political promise. It's the promise, he says, and this is the spirit of Marx, he wants to save the spirit of self-critique. So if you arrived at the end of history, you would be out of democracy? You would. And because the end of democracy would be the end of democracy. <laughs> yes. So uh, I think this is profoundly interesting and, yeah, and, and a much more inspiring way to think about democracy than, than what usually gets presented as, as the idea of democracy. But nevertheless, it strikes me that democracy is still haunted by the division of the ideal towards which it strives. Because in a way, the critique that you're talking about um, is happening in the name of, uh, I don't know, improving the democracy or yeah. living up to the promise of democracy. So it's, not, it's, it's again not an entire move away uh, from what we've had previously, but a rethinking, quite a ra radical rethinking of what it means to uh, exist democratically. Um, so, yeah. That's, that's right, because he thinks that the self-critique moment uh, has inside it something of the messianic, something of the something to come, but now without any determinate end in view what you have, uh, 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 precisely as you say, there's still this openness to self-critique, meaning um, perfectibility, or improving. That whatever we've attained thus far shouldn't be thought of in Tina terms, in terms of there is no alternative. Once you hit a Tina moment in this structure, again, you're closing down the very thing you're trying to save. So when a Fukuyama type says, you know, we've achieved the ideal adequate ideally adequate form of, of democracy, you've just destroyed the thing. It's a kind of massive self-harm moment. Go, go, go. So I've got two questions to ask about that. <laughs> one, one, one is a sort of philosophical question, uh, and one is a, 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 a literary criticism question. So the, the, the self question is, is, how is that view different from a kind of Michael Oakeshott, there is no safe harbour, we have to keep steering the boat kind of anti-utopianism. So that's my, my philosophical question. And my literary question is, 
it always seems to be this book that he never actually, he always left the theatre before Act 5, Scene <laughs> 2, where nearly everybody <laughs> dies. Uh, and so the, the ghost, in fact, is a, is a source of destruction. And I'm aware of Derrida talking about metaphoricity and the power of the metaphor, and yet this Hamlet metaphor ends up with, you know... Can I throw up another issue be- before you get your teeth into those? Um, so part part of the the problem for us also is in as much as democracy is imagined with European man in mind, it remains mm, invested in the idea of European man, which Derrida has just shown is hugely problematic and brilliant it's and so how do we embrace the promise of democracy without getting stuck in the history of its racism? Good question. <laughs> the perfe- so we have the uh, perfectionism is held on to. So the classic perfectionism is what one might call uh, um, one of a teleological finality, that there is one end of man conceived exactly in this European way, one end of man which is, as it were, the end which is universally fitting for all humanity. And the, the um, communism is an example of that, but it's not the only example of... Uh, in, in the history of philosophy, uh, particularly in the Christian era, um, what the Greeks through the Romans got translated into as uh, our being as rational animality. Uh, Rational animality wasn't thought of as something that is fully developed when it first appears, but that reason itself unfolds in time. History is that becoming itself of the (coughs) rational animal. So you have a a movement of self-realization or self-emancipation or de-alienation of rational animality. Marx is right inside all of that, instantly. Um, now, that, there you have a picture of a conception of man, which, as you say, the, the um, uh, democracy isn't entirely divorced from, but because in the old picture, there's an idea of perfectionism, human perfection, some end which would be the perfection of our, animal be- our rational animal being. Now, Derrida wants to hold on to something of perfectionism, as you're saying, the, 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 some messianic promise, uh, some better way to be that we could attain, the as yet unattained but attainable uh, possibility for us, but without this uh, finality. And wh- what I think he wants to say is that the, uh, we have to if we're going to affirm something like that politically, we do have to entirely give up that universalist conception of man that had dominated Europe for some three, four, five hundred years, but I mean ultimately for over a thousand years. And um, he regards the task then uh, as a fairly um, mammoth one of rethinking what it is to be a human being and sees the, his, our own history, the history of the 20th century, decolonization, the, the, the uh, end of empire, just as much as the um, fascism and totalitarianism, as blowing apart 
that European self-understanding and demanding of us to find new ways to think about what it is to be us. I was so surprised to, to find when I was rereading this yesterday, um, there's a reference to the animal, the question of the animal in, in parentheses somewhere. And I'm, once I'd seen that, the whole text for me was then kind of haunted by the question of the animal, uh -huh. um, as well as the question of race and the question of sex and all those kinds of things that he does allude to uh, in more detail. Well, that, I mean, that was absolutely right. And, and naturally so, because the, the whole tradition of understanding man as man, that is, as rational animality, is all about a radical break between the course, human yeah. being and other animal. And as soon as that is being called into question, which he thinks our time is utterly involved in, it's inseparable from our time that uh, we're rethinking those kinds of relationships. So I think you're right to see it haunting the whole thing. And once you've noticed once, um, in Derrida's text, the animal comes up all the time, or quite frequently at any rate. He's quite um, exercised by this question, I think. I'm aware we've only got 10 minutes left, and I'm sure you have lots of questions, so maybe we could pick up some questions from the audience. One right at the front. Just a reflection about, can you hear? About Marx. I'm struck by the fact that we isolate Marx from all his predecessors, and he's also the result of all those utopians, and uh, especially, I'm sorry to call the French, uh, uh, Proudhon, Fourier, and so on, because I'm French, so that's what I know. And of course, there, there is the Anglo-Saxon side I don't know much about. But I think we, we can't throw the baby with the water of the bath, of course, because the baby has an incredible amount of roots, which are also part of what Europe is. Um, and anyway, I could go on. Thank you. Well, Bob, Bob had mentioned the uh, utopian question and, and the critique of utopian thinking that is undoubtedly inside Derrida. And one of the things that you're right about, actually, it's strikingly, in a way, a more conservative tradition than the more radical traditions of um, Marxist and leftist utopianism. Uh, but what you're right about is that, of course, that utopianism isn't a, a, a peculiarly Marxist possession. And I mentioned... Kant and Hegel, but you know, all over Europe, utopian thought was massively dominant, and this was to do with this self-understanding not only of man, but of European man. Mm -hmm. So you had uh, a, a, cons a European conception of man as, uh, roughly speaking, theomorphic, rational animality, so distinguished from all other animals by being made in God's image and having this rational capacity. Um, and that means that this animal develops in time from some primitive origin towards some finally civilized rational end. And this is how Europeans understood what man is, and they understood themselves as at the head of that self-development of human, humanity. And whether you look at Hegel or Kant or Marx, it's all going to happen in Europe first. And in fact, in Marx, as much as Hegel and Kant, it's going to happen in Germany first. 
Uh, and that this, as it well, were... Well, that certainly yeah. <laughs> It certainly won't happen in England. Uh, uh, and that remains true. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of questions in the second and third row. Maybe you can take them one after the other. I just wanted to say you haven't said very much about neoliberalism and, and how and I've how been that waiting fits for in. somebody to ask that. I wondered, I wondered if you wanted to just comment on that. I mean, one can speculate, but it'd be much more interesting to hear, hear from you. And, Thank and you. Just a, just a comment. Um, I suppose, I mean, this has been fascinating, and I suppose in a way what Derrida has, has done for us um, is to recover Marx from being... Um, a prophet to being a philosopher, um, recovering him from being, if you like, a scientist in the bad sense of that word, you know, predicting a, a, a kind of theological things, to being an intellectual. I think that's, uh, one, one can only be very grateful for that. Um, Thank you. Can we take this, another question? Yeah. All right, my question also relates to uh, neoliberalism in a sense. Um, it would be, if looking at neoliberalism today, um, can't we say that Marx might, uh, Marx, Derrida might not have taken enough from Marx or not have left enough from Marx? And I mean, I just stumbled upon a quote from Spivak who criticized um, Derrida quite yeah. heavily for that. So saying that he can't see the connections between the modern capitalism and post-industrialism and all those things we're observing at the moment. Uh, and because he doesn't take enough from Marx besides seeing him as a spectre. Thank you. And I think there was one other question. Yeah. If you could keep it really brief, that would be great. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's somehow related to the last one. You mentioned, the, the panel mentioned the spectre of haunting Europe post-20th century in terms of, for example, Nazism, fascism, communism. In their experience, historically and, say, in terms of neoliberalism, has anything really changed in terms of progress? Thank you. So our cunning plan was if anybody said neoliberalism, Simon was going to go first. <laughs> so. uh, on, on the neoliberalism question, the... What I called earlier the Tina, that there is no alternative, is a very central part of, of the kind of uh, idea that the only possible future, and in fact this means there is no possible future, but uh, uh, the only possible future would be more of the same of uh, liberal democracy as we have it now and uh, capitalism as we have it now, the old models as Derrida puts it. Um, but neoliberalism is a word he used, and I was very struck, actually, that uh, in 1992 that he was already using this word. He's not, he wasn't alone in uh, doing that, but what, uh, he, he had a fairly clear sense of what neoliberal is, and I'd, I'd, I'd rather take issue with saying that what we see today, we have no idea what we see today, to be quite honest, <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to please any Marxists in what I do say in a moment, but uh, neoliberalism is quite a carefully defined expression um, around the limit, unlimited extension of economic reason to the whole of life. So uh, Derrida had in view totalitarianisms of various sorts. One of them, which he would cite through Hannah Arendt, was 
um, a political neoliberalism, which means the unlimited extension of political reason to the whole of life, where everyone's a comrade at every moment, where everyone is a brother, everyone is a, 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 a like, I don't know what the Nazis said, you know, everybody had to be a Nazi. Uh, uh, everyone's a Nazi at every moment of their life. So the unlimited extension of the political to the whole, whole of life, that's a, a political neoliberalism, every bit as rotten as an economic neoliberalism, which, however, Fukuyama delights in. He says the, the economization of the whole of life, wow. You know, that's, that's what he sees happening, and he's right to see it happening. He's celebrating it. Derrida is not celebrating it. And uh, uh, neoliberalism as that movement in our times towards the unlimited extension of economic reason to the whole of life is a disaster for us. And we mustn't think, Tina, that there is no alternative. And I just add one thing to that. Again, all the way through the book, he's always talking about us and we and what we must do, which is a sense of kind of community, intellectual community, I guess, uh, which is against the, the, the Tina and against the reduction to individual, it seems to me. He's talking more about law and things that we do together, speaking to the ghosts together, which is exactly how he ends, which seems to be a, a, a source of something optimistic. Possibly. I mean, he, he talks about fraternity as the most problematic of all the pro inheritances of the French Revolution. An overemphasis on community, communalism, is every bit as dangerous as its opposite. Um, I briefly wanted to come back to that question of has anything changed? Um, so, as Simon has pointed out, if you, you know, economic neoliberalism, of course, is of its time, but I think what you're referring to is there have been other ways of exploiting people, of justifying violence, and so on. So, the answer to your question, I presume, is yes and no. Um, there, there are different rationalizations uh, of violences against persons, and these rationalizations matter because they configure power relations and who, who gets what they get. Um, but we clearly haven't as yet found a way to move outside of any of these. So if there is hope and there is promise, this takes us back to this idea that democracy is the self-critiquing form of government so that we keep trying and we keep searching. Um, but I can't answer for you whether anything has changed. It depends also on what matters to you. We are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, thank you all for coming. Do join us for a glass of wine upstairs and join me in thanking our speakers.